This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. I remember my modern history book in Greek high school most vividly for one thing, what I perceive to be an entire missing chapter. The chapter on the Great War finished. We were told that being on the losing side destabilized the Ottoman Empire, which sharpened the appetites of great European powers who were interested in the region. It ended with the words to the effect, what followed was a most unfortunate episode in Greek history. But when you turned the page, the episode was missing. Time had jumped forward to the destruction of Asia Minor in 1922, complete with a full-page oil painting of frightening Ottomans wearing kavuk turbans wielding curved yatagan swords, slaughtering innocent babes and pushing desperate women into the sea, one of the most enduring images of Islamophobia. My guest today is the Turkish author, columnist and sociologist Defne Suman, whose brilliant book, The Silence of Sheherazad, takes place during precisely that most unfortunate episode in our history and plugs that very chapter of my history book in the most elegant and poetic way possible. It is effectively a historical account, but it's told from the various different but intertwined perspectives of a, a, a sort of what I call a chocolate box cast. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Daphne. Well, hello. Nice to be here with you, Alex. So let me start from the other side of the same sea. I am from Turkey, and we have the same chapter um, told in a different way. We don't have the three years of Greek administration in Smyrna, and all of a sudden, um, Turkish army captures Izmir, Smyrna, mm-hmm. and then it's a big victory but nobody talks about what really happened. Yeah. So, um, of course, I was curious. Whatever is missing, you are curious to learn. What, what, why was that piece was missing? Um, and at that point, I was coming and going to Greece and listening to the other side of the story from everyone I meet on the streets and everywhere. So I wanted to have a perspective of both sides of the Aegean Ocean of how things happened. And as an author, that really um, brought appetite to my writing. So the Turkish book were selective also in in slightly different ways. Um, I, I mean, I don't have a scientific sample, but from the people I speak to, I would say that the vast majority of people in Greece to this day do not know that it was Greece that actually invaded 
um, Turkey at that point, that, that the instigator, as it were, of the aggression was actually the, the allied side. Well, and it's the, the well-known truth about Turkey. It's very, very difficult to remove the word invasion from the heads of Turkish people. And I try to be very careful with that word because it's not technically an invasion. It's a, Greece is given Smyrna as part of the treaties at the end of the First World War. Yes. And this, I try to erase at least, you know, with one book, but we move with one book at a time from the heads of the Turkish people that it wasn't an invasion. So I try to use the word, you know, the times of Greek administration, mm. when Greek administration was ruling Smyrna. Otherwise, in today, you go to Turkey and you immediately hear the word Oh, the years of Greek invasion of Smyrna. Hmm. And there was also, around those events, a sort of internationally agreed population exchange that also confuses things, doesn't it? Because in Greece, at least, you tend to think of only the Greek population that's being pushed out of Asia Minor, but there was also a significant Turkish population on the Greek side that was also yes. pushed out and made refugees. Yes, and that that population exchange program is always a, a problem for me when I was trying to describe my book because in Turkey, everybody thinks that there has been only the population exchange, the forced migration of Greeks of Anatolia back to mainland Greek, Greece and then the Muslim populations of Greece to what is today Turkey. Whereas that's not the case because there is at least that many of Greek people ran away from Anatolia because of the war and they um, practically had to jump to the sea and cross to, cross to Greece. Um, the numbers are, of course, much more Greeks were pushed out of Turkey, but there was quite a bit of people and among which my grandparents are, 300,000 Muslims pushed out of Greece and, mm. and arrived to Turkey as refugees. And, and let me tell you that another, another thing missing from my history book was how appallingly Greek refugees from Asia Minor were treated when they arrived in Greece. We ghettoed them and called them names for decades. Why the burning of Smyrna as the book's Apex. I mean, obviously, it is as heightened and high stakes a dramatic situation as possible. But it is also, in other ways, quite a passive circumstance. Um, for the people in that harbor, they were effectively already dead. The only choice they had to make is what death they chose, mm -hmm. whether they chose to go into the fire behind them, the ocean in front of them, or the soldiers sort of guarding the sides. Yes. So was it not horrible for you as an author crafting these characters, giving birth to them in effect, only to then put them in that horrific situation? It was very difficult, but from the very beginning, I knew the book was going to end there. So I kind of kn I knew their destiny, where it's going to take them. When you read it in a history book, it's something else. When it happens to somebody you know, it's completely different. So that's the effect I wanted to create. I wanted you, the reader, to get to know these people, love these people, be with them for a long time. So I wrote a big book. 
So you spend time, maybe even weeks with you, maybe a month with, with them. And then at the end, I wanted reader to feel really sorry and really sad and feel the loss because the book mm. is all about loss. It's the loss of cosmopolitan Smyrna. What we have today, Izmir, is not a cosmopolitan place. It's a, you know, a place where only one language is spoken, one group of people are living. And even though it's still joyful, it's still beautiful, still progressive people are living there, it's a mononation, single nation, single language place. I, you're from Istanbul, aren't you? I'm from Istanbul, yes. Yeah, so Istanbul is one of my favorite places on the planet. Mine too. Um, I, I love it. And I don't know why. What I expected the first time I went there, but what I didn't expect was that it had kept this whole history that everyone in the marketplace, every barber spoke Greek. You could see its patchy past on full mm -hmm. display. And when I went to Izmir, I found completely the opposite. Um, so there were bits of it that were completely erased. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, you must have gone there quite a lot. Izmir is a very good example of how you can erase history from the space. Smyrna was not the only cosmopolitan Levant town. There was also Beirut, there was Istanbul, there were Alexandria. But the way Izmir ended, the way Smyrna ended was very aggressive because it ended with a fire. Then, mm. because the population was mostly Greek and Armenians, um, as you push them out of the town, there was actually nobody left. So they needed to bring more people into Izmir. And today, when you look at Izmir's, Izmir's population, you don't see anybody. You don't find anyone who is there more than three generations. They mm. all say, my grandparents are from Crete. My grandparents are from Kavala, my grandparents. So <laughs> all these uh, population exchange um, Muslims were actually pushed and, and settled in Smyrna, where um, the Greek and Armenian neighborhoods used to be. And yeah. they don't remember because they were not there. So it's um, the reason why I picked the name The Silence of Shehrazad for the title of the book, at least in, in English and in Greek, it, come, it came out with this name, uh, because there is silence about the past. Yes. This is one of the chapters I actually devoted in the book to this in Greece. It's the complete opposite. There is incitement to remember. Remember what happened in Smyrna. Then but only Greece, that. Only that. Only that. You remember <laughs> the catastrophe. It, yes. yes. Yes, we we call it the big catastrophe uh, uh, in Greece. I mean, you know that because you live in Athens. Of course, yes. Um, which has always struck me as the equivalent of Brits saying the troubles to describe what happened in Northern <laughs> Ireland, you know. Because yes. it is a way of avoiding detail. It's a way of avoiding any truth that might start a conversation, they are terms designed to stop people from talking about historical events. Why so much of nationalism invested in this sort of historical propaganda? Because it is propaganda. You know, when, yes. I, when I went back to that history book of my youth many years later, I found out that the painting on the side of the chapter was actually Delacroix's destruction of Chios. Mm. 
mm-hmm. which is a hundred years earlier. Right, I yes. mean, it's sort of not even from the same period. So it is a very real attempt at propaganda, at get, putting an image inside a child's mind to say, this is what Turks are like. Yeah, well, nationalism is the disease of our century, unfortunately. That's how I see it. It's the worst thing that happened to humanity in the 20th century. This this new idea, nationalism, came and separated people into nations, empires into nation-states. And you have to build that because it's also linked to capitalism. It's also linked to um, global markets. So they are all hand in hand going together and uh, Mm. um, the monotheistic religions feeding it. So it's a whole system tied up tightly to one another. You can't just pull out one part of the the knot and then expect the others work. Um, So you have to build it. And it's a shallow ideology. There's no depth in that. So you start from shallow things like violence, death, Um, enemy, making an enemy at the very, again, shallow level. This is your enemy, black, and you are the innocent part, white. So let's come up with a story that you will always remember. You're on the white side and the others are on the black side. And this is everywhere in the world. You know, Greece Mm. and Turkey is just a small example of what's happening everywhere from China and Japan. I don't know, United States and uh, the Mexico. So... (laughs) That's the fashion, unfortunately, and it's, I find it underneath everything evil these days. I follow Turkish politics, not very closely, but certainly more, more closely than people who don't have family in the region, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many times I have said, well, surely that's it for Erdogan. Yeah. Only to be proved wrong. And I know he makes a lot of moves to consolidate his power, but he's also incredibly popular. What explains his enduring appeal? It's hard for me to know. I don't know. We have to ask to that 50% of Turkey who find him very um, charismatic and powerful. Well, first of all, I always think Turkey needs a father. So whenever there's a father figure, we would love to embrace that. It's like a child, not even a teenager. It's at the child stage who needs a father, Mm. an orphan maybe. So one psychological or sociological um, analysis is that you don't have to do anything. He's going to do everything for you. You can just sit back and wait for him to do things. And the other thing is like, Turkey is not ready for a democracy, was not ready when democracy was, you know, they tried to establish it. And this is what you have at the end of it. It becomes nothing but an election. People think democracy Mm. is just elections. Okay, we elected this guy and now we don't have to do anything else. People don't want to take responsibility. So it's a nice thing to have a powerful figure who will say, you don't have to do anything. I'll do it all for you. And if you're against that father, if you're a rebel in the family, then you're in trouble. That's what's happening Mm. in Turkey. Yes, I I think a a lot of people ignore the fact that that a, a significant chunk of the population I mean, you see that in Greek, in Greece as well. A significant chunk of every population actually quite likes an authority. Yes. Uh, 
um, state. Yes, because it's easy. Um, you don't take responsibility. Because it's easy. You don't have yeah, choice. You don't have yeah, choice. you don't have decisions to make. Um, I, I've been reading pieces about the AKP uh, for, for listeners. That's Erdogan's Justice and Development Party is falling apart for a decade now. The fear when I speak to friends in Turkey is that even if he loses, he will somehow not lose, and that the only way he is leaving the palace is horizontally. Mm. Um, what, what do you think? Well, okay. At the end, it's it, one man cannot do things alone. Half of the nation brought him up there. So even if he steps down or if he loses, like there is a whole system still supporting this party or the mm. these kind of people, the ideology, the um, the networks they have developed in the production, in the commerce, in the political systems, in the justice system. It's it's been more than 10-15 years and this has been developing as a substructure mm. in Turkey. It's it's going to be really hard to undo it. But I believe in people because the people of of young people of Turkey are fabulous and they are there to reset everything and restart, but it's going to take time. Uh, I want to ask you whether you think uh, Ekrem Imamoglu is uh, a real challenger, but I should explain for the listeners that uh, Imamoglu is the mayor of Istanbul and is seen by many as a potential candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, he was elected with a a, a smallish majority of 20-odd thousand, served as mayor for about two weeks before a Turkish court um, just cancelled the election. He was then elected again with a majority of almost 800,000 votes. Mm-hmm. Um, I take a lot of hope in that in a strange way, because even though the the broken system sort of tried to deny the result, the result came back even stronger. Yes. Um, what, what do you think? Well, I want to believe in him. I want him to. But on the other hand, I'm just thinking whoever goes to Ankara, whoever becomes the head of the state, they lose their... They lose their, I don't want to say innocence, but right now we really believe in him and he's going to do a lot of good to this country. But there there are so many dealings happening at the level of state. Mm. And if you are there as a president, it's really hard to keep your hands clean to become a president of any country. So on the one Mm. hand, I'm saying, let's keep this guy as the mayor of Istanbul because it's a cleaner job, relatively. Mm, mm, mm. So... On the one hand, of course, I want him to become the president. On the other hand, I'm just thinking of the guy who is like a brilliant guy with a great family, beautiful wife, and, oh, he will be like wasted up there. <laughs> um, in, in the, I draw a parallel with the way many on the left in Greece believe Tsipras was sort of swallowed up by the system. Um, as as soon as he was in power. Exactly. Um, meanwhile, Erdogan, though, continues to erode freedoms. On the 1st of July, um, so just over a month ago, Turkey formally, shamefully, withdrew from the European Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women, which ironically was signed in yes. Turkey and is known as the Istanbul Convention. Now, this was signed under Erdogan. Yes. So why even he's regressing, even he's becoming 
more and more hardline. So, you know, the Erdogan of 2021 uh, would not be approved by the Erdogan of 2014 or 2005. Why is that? Why is he becoming even more um, uh, hardcore? Well, that treaty was signed in a rush because they were trying to cover up a, a violence case against um, a woman, and they wanted to show a good face that no, Turkey is actually trying to uh, trying to prevent violence against women. And here, here, look, we are signing a convention. But it was the convention, the Istanbul Treaty, was actually something just a fa- face value it never worked nobody put it in use so i'm very angry that okay it's pulled back pulled out but it on the other side it was never being applied women were killed left and right in turkey mm-hmm. for the last 20 years it became a fashion young men are actually doing it to prove themselves. I'm jealous, so I killed her. She wanted a divorce, so I killed her. And they are getting, like, they're free. They're walking out on the streets and killing killing other women. Um, so when you take yourself, your country, out of the Istanbul Con- Convention, it's actually a message to, to us women who are defending the women's rights. Like, we don't care about you. And if you are not mm. that one type of woman that is married, that is a mother, that doesn't work. If you're not that kind of woman, we are not going to protect you from anything that could happen to you. It was just a message to us. Internationally, um, also, Turkey walks a very fine line because it it is a member of NATO, but not a very good member. It's a friend of Russia, but occasionally they have big fights. It's a commercial partner of China. In a world that is becoming increasingly polarized, some think this balancing act is basically unsustainable, that Turkey has to pick a side and pick a side relatively soon. Which side do you think it's leaning towards? It's, it changes every day. I don't <laughs> think it can pick a side. That's the, that's the side of no size. Like whoever is powerful, whoever is working for me, I will go and side with that. Mm, which is in many ways the the most dangerous thing of all. Yes. Um, you you are of course a, a one woman ambassadorial mission between Turkey and Greece. <laughs> uh, I mean, you are you are a celebrated Turkish author. You're married to a Greek. You live in Athens. Yes. The silence of uh, Shahrazad was published simultaneously, I think, in Greek and Turkish. That's right. Isn't yes, it? the same day. It was amazing. It's it was total coincidence, but they were published in the same day. How beautiful. Your next book is, I understand, Years in the Future. Is is that right? During a third pandemic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anything but the present, Daphne, right? Yes, that's that's my new book, After the Rain. And in uh, The Silence of Scheherazade, there is is a sort of William Faulknerish quality or a sort of Rashomon quality or to 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 make the the reference more modern a pulp fiction quality mm. that means as a reader you're only seeing pieces of the story from di- different sides and you lack key pieces of the puzzle until the very end was that was that a literary device that you decided yes. on or was it such a central message 
of the book that you know you you must look at things from other perspectives to find the truth that it permeated the structure well both uh, I tried to do both. I wanted to use it as a device, as a literary device. But at the same time, mm. yes, that was the message. Like, don't look for one linear um, plot that will tell you everything. Be, put a little bit of work, you reader, I was trying to say. you know, Find out this puzzle, because I like books like that. I don't want everything to be given to me from the very beginning. And this, this, our need as humans that is getting actually more and more sh- uh, sharp, our need to understand everything is, I was trying to challenge that. Don't try to understand. You cannot understand universe, but you still live in the universe. So don't understand what's going on from the beginning. You will at the end, hopefully. I, I, found, I found it quite touching at times, actually, because... Um, like there's one bit where one of the characters is looking dispassionately, sort of detached uh, at a scene playing out, which is actually an, an incredibly emotional scene in, in the previous chapter for the previous character. Mm-hmm. But they're looking at it with the interest of an observer. And I found that incredibly touching, that notion that you are the star of your story, but in someone else's story, you're just an extra. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? um, d- does Turkey need to talk about its past more openly and more honestly? I mean, this is a very live debate everywhere in the mm-hmm. world at the mm-hmm. moment, especially in Britain, where there is one school of thought that patriotism means having an entirely sort of positive view of the past and revering the monuments and the statues and the trappings and the narratives that maintain that rose-tinted view. There's another school of thought that Britain will always be a dysfunctional place with delusions of grandeur until it faces its colonial past. Mm -hmm. And your book felt very much like a plea to people in both Greece and Turkey to look at this thing, you know, stop. It, it was like saying, stop turning away from this thing. Look at it. You know, it's a long time ago, but it is part of your history. It is part of your DNA. Yeah. And it's part of today. It's not that past. It's only three generations past. It's impossible for us not to feel the shame or the guilt or the secret um, of what mm-hmm. happened. So, Preserving the silence is being part of the crime. So let's not Mm. be part of the crime anymore. And this is where the healing will begin. I think Turkey needs a lot of healing, Turkish people, um, Mm. through culture, through storytelling, not necessarily from the state, but we can heal ourselves from the wounds of the past and be okay with one another. Is that why you're central character and, and nar- narrator, Shehrazad, um, which I have to tell you, I, I vacillated between thinking she was Turkey and thinking she was history. And I'm not asking mm-hmm. for you to clarify that. But I can. But she ends up an ancient woman isolated in a tower whom even death cannot find until she puts the story together. I, I thought about Shehrazad being Smyrna, and Smyrna 
or Izmir not talking about its past, therefore not becoming a complete place, a complete society, a complete community of people, a complete city. Mm. If you stay silent, the silent Shehrazad's future is always death. So many years that we didn't talk about the past, it was the years of silence of Shehrazad. And now, as we start talking as the authors, the artists of Turkey, we are breaking that silence and... and um, yeah, becoming, it's, it's a path to becoming whole. Yes. As you put it very nicely. Daphne Suman, thank you for your time. I think we will be having coffee in Athens very soon and talking more about that all of this. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. I'm waiting. Athens is waiting for you. Daphne Suman's glorious epic, The Silence of Shehrazad, is out on the 19th of August. Listeners, remember there's a new banker daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays in a longer full weekly panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I go back to this simple sentence from Daphne Suman's herring. It seems that when there is an ear that wants to listen, one's voice will find a way to speak out. It is a profound message, is it not, that one must make some quiet in order for difficult stories to be told, that we all have a duty to make space for the truth. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker, returning you to that rich silence. <laughs>